This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. This person died in 2021, age 84. He was friends with Ken Kesey and made a memorable cameo appearance in Tom Wolfe's classic book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Yeah, I got nothing so far. Okay. (laughs) I don't know who any of these people are. (laughs) Not easy. He had a private library that held some 30,000 books and was spread over three houses. Hunter S. Thompson? Oh, good guess. Not Hunter S. Thompson. His son is a well-regarded singer and songwriter. I don't feel like it's Hank Williams. That wouldn't be congruent with the library. It's a really good um, guess, though. That's a really good guess. Multi-generational talent. He wrote more than 30 screenplays, including the one for Brokeback Mountain. I mean, now I'm just... I'm just going to lie and give, <laughs> I'm gonna give you a fake name as to who I am so that no really one has to you. know I don't know who. Oh, oh, oh. Um, I can picture him, maybe. I don't know. Your, your clues are so tricky. He found his greatest commercial and critical success with Lonesome Dove, a sweeping 843-page novel that was turned into a miniseries. That is McMurtry, James, Jim, Walter, <laughs> Larry. Are we thinking Larry McMurtry? <laughs> Today's dead celebrity is Larry McMurtry. You told the New York Times in 2007, I'm bored to death with the 19th century West. I'm never going to write another novel about the Old West. Well, that was just a tactic. (laughs) (laughs) If people think you're going to write endless books about the Old West, they aren't going to be too happy. But if there's some subterfuge involved, uh, you you can proceed with your life. You know, I have to earn a living, after all. And there comes a time when writing another Western is the quickest way. (laughs) Welcome to Famous and Great. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life. We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire. We ultimately are here to answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Larry McMurtry died 2021, age 84. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Larry McMurtry, a prolific novelist and screenwriter who demythologized the American West with his unromantic depictions of life on the 19th century frontier and in contemporary small-town Texas, died on Thursday at his home in Archer City, Texas. He was 84. It's very complimentary. All right, the word that caught my attention here is demythologized. Demythologize the American West. Demythologize the American West and contemporary small town Texas. That's like the opposite of like a tribesman who is the leader of the group and tells old stories. Yeah, He's just right. in there to, here to correct you, them. I'm here to tell you all the stories you learned are bullshit. Yeah. I actually thought that was a little bit of an unusual thing to lead with. I think that that was his ambition, but he even sort of himself speaks to, yeah, I tried to demythologize the American West and in so doing, I still like... 
all but re-mythologized, especially the cowboy, which he sort of had a lot to say about it being a sort of unassailable American icon. And right, no matter how much demythologizing he's trying to do, we can't be successful with it. Oh, I think he's emasculating the cowboy. Ah, okay. I think that's what he's doing because he's showing the, the, this the heteronormative, in, you know, in, hyper individualistic. Correct. I mean, yeah. Lonesome Dove is is all about character flaws and vulnerability. Yes, uh, and I think that's what they're referring to. Well, and Brokeback Mountain is about gay cowboys. Correct. I see that. I guess there's demythologizing, but I it may, I don't know. There's humanizing. Is demythologizing the same thing as humanizing? I think in this context it is. Yeah. Okay. Because we don't. I don't think we humanize the old West. Yeah. Or yeah. even the modern West and the modern cowboy. Yeah. So, okay. So demythologized and unromanticized. They're kind of giving With his him- unromantic depiction. Yeah. I'm just not convinced he succeeded in that. No, I think that was his intention and that's what literary critics see. Yeah. But I don't think actual passerby fans of Lonesome Dove and Last Picture Show and Brokeback Mountain necessarily walked away with that. Yeah, I agree. So is it missing anything? Are there omissions in this first line? His relationship with books, which we're going to get into a lot. Yeah, the antiquarian thing. I mean, that was so much of his life, remaking the city. Yeah. Um, I would have liked a nod to it. I actually do kind of agree, though, that like he cared more about book collecting than book writing or screenwriting. It still misses a, a thing that he cared a lot about, but it's not what we knew him for. So to the extent that the first line of the obituary is a news lead, then I do think that this one's very good. But I also think that he himself would have quibbled with it and said, you didn't mention my book collector. Yeah, he was a writer above yeah. all else. And he would have maybe rather you said a writer and book collector, but you can't have both. And he's known for his writing. All right. Yes. Well, so uh, what's your score? Eight. Okay. I'm going to go one higher. I'm going to go nine. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. I think it's really great. The other thing that we haven't really drawn attention to, Texas is mentioned twice. I think that's important and maybe the first thing I want to lead off with. Okay. All right. Next category? Yep. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to try and come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we should be talking about them what's interesting and important about their You're lives. very excited about this. I am there's, seriously there's excited. There's a grin about, coming out. I really thought about my five things. So you must lead then. I'll lead off with what I was teasing a second ago. Definitively, definingly Texan in the best possible ways. I say in the best possible ways. That's actually not an easy tag on to definitively Texan. I have been trying to, in the lead up to this conversation, have conversations with friends with who are the best Texans? I don't love the list I've been coming up with because it's got a major male bias and a major white bias. And I don't know what to do about that. And I'm sure there's some omissions here. There's some easy ones that kind of come to mind. Willie Nelson, obviously. Waylon Jennings for me. My wife offered Matthew McConaughey with some reservation, but I actually think that's a great one. That is a great one. Yeah. I mean, he's in the middle of his life, but yeah, that yes, is a great one. Yes, is, but he is like thoroughly Texan and sort of known for his Texan-ness. Ann Richards, I think, is not a bad nominee, yeah. uh, or former governor. Uh, Molly Ivins also is right up there, you know, journalist. Great one. They just did a biography about her in the last year or two. Really? A documentary. No shit. Yeah. Oh, wow. I need to, I'd like to see that. But the last one I want to offer up here is sort of important, and that's Robert Earl Keane. And the reason I think that he needs to be mentioned in the same breath as Larry McMurtry is that they both seem to have outsized and amplified 
fame and notoriety within the borders of the state. The fanaticism around Robert Elkin Jr. and Larry McMurtry goes up two notches as soon as you cross the border into the state of Texas. And you go the other way to Louisiana, it just stops. Yeah. It, I mean, it doesn't barely, totally barely fall barely off known. a cliff. Right. I mean, that's Robert Earl has always been kind of like everybody in the state knows and loves him, but he is like definitively and definingly Texan. But what do you think about this as, as a thing I love about you for McMurtry? I mean, I, I feel passionately about it, but I wonder if I'm... I think it's accurate, but it's so interesting because it's about his art more than it's about him. I'm not sure that he wants to be the hero of Texas or be the most definitive Texan of all time, as you insinuated as possible. Yeah, I agree with that. But like it or not, he is that to me. Yeah, this segues perfectly to my number two. All right. It's that he is a boomerang Texan. Boomerang Texan. A boomerang Texan. So don't know this term. It's popular now with a boomerang child, right? A child goes away to college and may go away for a few years, then comes back and lives with mom and dad. I see, yes. Um, Larry McMurtry did not love Texas his whole life, and I'm not even sure he loved it up until the year he died. What is it about Archer City that so attracts you? Uh, Archer City doesn't really exactly attract me. It's just my, <laughs> it's, it's just my home. Yeah, and he has bad things to say about Dallas. He has bad things to say about Austin. Yeah. So when he went and lived in D.C., which is, I think, the late 60s, he was interviewed about why he's not in Texas. And he said, I got tired of dealing creatively with the kind of mental and emotive inarticulateness that I found in Texas. Uh, he faulted, fair, fair. He faulted the state for its excess of Oldsmobiles. And then it goes on to say that McMurtry is a yuppie and East Coast snob. A youthful marriage had left McMurtry seared with a son in diapers to raise, and much of that pain was absorbed in Austin. He took a swipe at that dismal town and its endless production of third-rate books, music, and pictures. I don't believe Austin can claim a single first-rate artistic talent in any art, McMurtry said in the late 60s. So he actually, the more he got away from Texas, the more he despised it. Yeah. And it took a while for him to come to grips with, well, Texas is actually what's kind of making my career and making my identity. But in fact, it's what's coming through in my art. And so it took him several decades to come to grips with the fact that he was actually a Texan. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is the thing I love about him is he had to leave to love it. Yeah. And I think that's a great life lesson for experiencing traveling and wandering. I relate to that too. Yeah. So you have a lot of people that say, I was born here, I was raised here, I live here and I'm going to die here. There's something missing in that. Yeah. Right. And that is that outside exposure that can make you come back and love it more. Yeah. And here we are, two people that kind of follow the same paths yeah. that left Texas in our 20s and came back in our late 30s. All right. I love it. Shall I do my number three? Yes. All right. This is one of those catch-all. This is a sort of Ahmed Kapoor kind of thing I love. I wrote signs and coincidences. So you're going to I'm intrigued. You're okay. going to have to bear with me. So I read like fucking four memoirs of his and rewatched Lonesome Dove in the lead up to this. I can't think of a famous and gravy dead celebrity who I have more like obsessed about in the research. All right. Signs and coincidences. This was my way of telling three stories that I fucking love. All right. Story number one, the water tower. So in 1962-63, he has sold his first book, Horseman Passed By, that's going to be adapted into the movie HUD, starring Paul Newman. 
and he goes and visits his first film set uh, and doesn't have a great experience there, and he's sort of weirded out by it. The film is being shot in a town called Claude, Texas. That's kind of like Archer City. On his way out of town, he looks up at the water tower that usually says Claude, and instead it says Thalia. T-H-A. Because they've painted it for the movie. Because they've painted it for the movie. He has totally made up the name of this town. It doesn't exist, but he sees it on this water tower and he says, it's thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) So that's sign number one. Okay. Sign number two. Let's see. This is in uh, around, I want to say 1984-85. He's in a small South Texas town. Uh, This is the mid 80s. His career has really done fairly well at this point. Lones and Dubs come out, and Terms of Endearment has also been adapted from his book into a screenplay, the movie starring Shirley MacLaine, Jack Nicholson, won the best picture, right? He gets a phone call from his agent while he's in this town telling him that Lonesome Dove has won the Pulitzer Prize. And on his way into this town, he sees a sign on the marquee of the Holiday Inn that says, Welcome Larry McMurtry, author of Terms of Endearment. But as he's a few hours later walking to the actual press event, he looks up and sees that the sign has been changed. It now reads, Lunch Special Catfish 395. And and he said, after the press event, as the locals were flocking in, I did the same. He's a big fan of catfish. So he sort of is noting that as he's reaching this peak, like, all things pass. And before the press event was even done, his big welcoming sign has been changed to a catfish special. Third story. This is it about 2006? It's awards season in Hollywood. This is before the Oscars, and he describes this moment as being better than the Oscars. He's coming home from some awards show, and he's fallen asleep in the back of a limousine. And he wakes up as the limo is driving on Santa Monica Boulevard, and it happens to be passing by the Troubadour, which is a legendary rock venue. And he opens his eyes just in time to see the marquee, which read James McMurtry, his son, who has either just played or is about to. He had no idea he was in town. And he says in one of his memoirs, quote, this was an excellent thing for a father to see out of one eye in a limo in L.A. in the middle of the night. All right. So not only do I love all those stories, I want to talk about coincidences and signs for just a minute. Okay. I'm going to call this a spiritual endeavor. I don't believe in coincidences. I like to entertain the idea that there might be some higher power out there who wants to communicate with me. And I don't know if that higher power actually exists or not. And I'm not sure finding that higher power even fucking matters. But I do think it is a healthy thing for an individual to be looking that seeking a higher power of your understanding is just as important, in fact, probably more important than finding one. So the idea that these signs may be the universe talking back to Larry McMurtry is something I love. Yeah, because the universe could be communicating through a holiday end sign. Exactly. Did you enjoy those stories? I did very much. I'm going to come back to a couple of those in some of my points later. All right. I like those. And we may have catfish for lunch after the recording. Beautiful. All right. Thing you love, number four. It's yours. Cowboys and hippies. So, uh, do you know, I took this from a David Allen Coe song. Where bikers stare at cowboys who are laughing at the hippies who are praying they'll get out of here alive. Larry McMurtry, Cowboy and Hippie. 
the embodiment of that comes from 1961 with the Stanford Fellowship, where he met Ken Kesey, frenemied him for a very long period with a fascinating culmination. Ken Kesey, best known for writing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest originally, but the later fame came as he was a major voice in the 60s countercultural movement, specifically in LSD. Yeah. And the electric Kool-Aid acid test, which was referred to in the quiz, mm-hmm. which was Kesey's cross-country road trip that he led with the Merry Pranksters essentially setting up acid tests yes. all throughout the country. So they'd go, they'd set up what would be the equivalent of a music festival and give acid to a bunch of people and see how they experienced it. Yeah. Often with the Grateful Dead, sometimes with Stuart Brand. Have you read that book? I have. I read it in college for a class. It's just a fascinating tale of the 60s, of both the start and the end of the 60s. Amen. Yeah. But in 1967, when this bus is going around there doing their acid test in Houston at Rice University, where I believe McMurtry was actually teaching at the time. I think that's right. Ken Kesey's like, oh, well, I'll just stay at McMurtry's house. Yeah. So the most outlandish dozens of hippies in this bus come and stay at McMurtry's house for a few days in preparation for the acid test. Do you know the story about when they rolled up? Somebody dances off the bus tripping and naked. Yeah, the woman's name in the book was Stark Naked. Stark Naked. And then some awkward exchange where Larry McMurtry is saying, ma'am, ma'am, like trying to like calm her down. And <laughs> Which is the perfect cowboys and hippies. <laughs> the way this acid test in Houston ends is the greatest cowboys and hippies McMurtry story I could ever come up with. Mm. So at the end of the acid test, as Kesey wrote, or at least one of the other people on the bus wrote, said, then we decided to leave and went out on the bus and hundreds of people followed and got on the bus inside, on the top, hanging from the rear, sitting on the hood. And Kesey kept saying, we are leaving. We are not coming back. It would behoove you all to get off. And everyone thought it was a total hoot and no one got off. And so we took off and we were heading out of town on the freeway when a car pulled alongside with people inside wavering and hollering, car honking, it was Larry McMurtry yelling, go back, go back. This is not good. You cannot take these people away. Be kind. Turn back. Turn back. <laughs> oh, shit. I totally forgot about that scene. Uh, cowboy hippie. Cowboys and hippies. It's beautiful. I'm going to call an audible on my thing number five. Okay. Because what I had for number five, I think he belongs in a different category. He's kind of nerdy. Very nerdy. I love that about him. I love that he's a nerd. He's extremely bookish. He's a little awkward. He's got thick glasses. I like nerdy people. I always have, even before nerds got cool. In high school, my favorite people were always the nerds. People who were into being smart in an unapologetic way. And it wasn't about social Darwinism or whatever. It was just like, this is who I am. And I love that about Larry McMurtry. He's nerdy. I like that. I mean, I'm of course with you 100% on that. Okay, so let's recap. I said, let's say definingly Texan. Number two, boomerang Texan. I said signs and coincidences. You said cowboy hippie. And I said nerdy. Great. It's a good list. Onward. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people can take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind and have a front row seat right behind his eyes. The point of this category is to imagine what memories or experiences might have been interesting. Amit. So I chose a moment in 1987 in Kerrville, Texas, which he might have not actually even been physically present for. 
1987, that was the Kerrville Folk Festival held every year. James McMurtry, his son, Larry's son, won one of six awards at the Kerrville Folk Festival. So I'm marking that as a moment that he was actually officially became an acknowledged independent artist who was going to make it as a musician. And this is what I like about it. Existential dread. I suffer from that. I'm pretty certain you do. Yes. So why are we all here? I don't really know. Maybe let's have some children and see if at least that gives us some purpose and we're perpetuating our race and our gene pool. (laughs) There is a conflict, though, I think amongst all parents that I've sensed from my friends, it's that you want your genes to be passed on, but you don't want them to live your life exactly. So at this moment, his son was going to make it as an artist. So he knew that after he died, his legacy as a father and as a McMurtry would live on through art, but through a different art form. Yes. And that may live on for another 30 or 50 years. And there may be a James McMurtry fan who is influenced by James and may influence somebody else. And that will carry on throughout life. But at that moment, Larry could have come to know the validation of parenting as a continuation of your own life, but also your own artistry. So I love James McMurtry. He is, among other things, a great lyricist. And he is has a like Dylan-esque quality sometimes to take a cliche and sort of twist it up a little bit, especially the song uh, that, that really leaps to mind is Fast As I Can. Listen to the lyrics of that song, and it's just like, clever as fuck. It's really great. She lost her mind and she never missed it. Folks all said she'd never learn. She'd take the path of least resistance. Right to the point of no return. I mean, this is something I'm struggling with. Yeah. I don't know if I will have children. Right. And how do you leave a legacy without just putting out money or art or whatever? Because you want to leave a legacy through people. You want to leave a legacy through actually instilling your embodiment into somebody else's heart of a future generation. Maybe as a society, we overemphasize. I think you can love your kids and also not have kids and aspire to have impact and value well beyond, you know, that direct relationship. As long as you can influence somebody in the heart who lives at least a day longer than you, and if they are influencing someone else, then you are continuing in legacy, in spirit, at least. Yeah. Good. That's been an idea in my mind uh, with a lot of our conversations. I'm glad we talked about it, this whole lineage thing. My Malkovich moment? Please. Captain Obvious. I know. I got to go with it. Wearing blue jeans to the 2006 Oscars. Oh, I loved that moment. I loved it at the time, and I love it so much more now. This is a rarity at the Oscars? This has never happened. I mean, he wears what's called a Texas tuxedo, right? He's got an Armani suit, top and jacket and tie, and then cowboy boots and blue jeans. Every time there is any occasion where I have to put on pants, I I balk. I hate putting on uh, anything other than blue jeans. 
It's how I've always been. And whether any kind of wedding or formal event where Allison or my mother or my father tells me, well, you got to wear pants to this, like I cringe inside. I always want to wear blue jeans. But I don't have the balls to wear them to the fucking Oscars. Like, I don't know if I would, and he and he did, and everybody remarked on it. John Stewart, who was hosting that year, made a joke about it. Like, everybody, like, pointed to, like, I can't believe that guy's wearing blue jeans. Oh, I love this moment. Love it. I don't have curiosity about it. I just want to be in there like, hell yeah. And, and it actually speaks to my thing, number one. I mean, it's a very Texan thing to do, to wear cowboy boots and blue jeans to the Oscars. Yeah. <sighs> Not even McConaughey did that. Oh, I had one more thing about the blue jeans. His second, uh, this is a preview of the next category. His second wedding, he apparently wore overalls and banged on a pot to start the ceremony. Okay. Yeah, kind of like uh, the character in Lonesome Dove. He was like 78 years old or something. Yeah, that time. but overalls. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Okay. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? So I'll go through this pretty quick. Two marriages. He married a woman named Joe Scott in 1959. They divorced in 1966. Larry was about 23 when they got married. uh, So he's about 29 or 30 when they divorced. This is the woman who's the mother of James McMurtry, already been mentioned. James is born in 1962. Larry is mostly a single father. He did give James a guitar at age seven. James said that his mom actually taught him three chords. His mom taught him three chords. His mom taught him three chords. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, but boy, it's hard to get information on this relationship, why it failed and how it came to be that Larry was the single dad. Yeah, this is a period to throw back to episode 20 about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Remember, she had the huge case advocating for single dads. Yes. That they were entitled to the same benefits of a single mother who was widowed. Right. Good callback. All right. Second wife. This one's almost just funny. Norma Faye Kesey, Kim Kesey's widow. But it didn't sound like there was a whole lot of courtship. It sounded like kind of a whim. But he married Kinkizi's widow, Norma Fakizi, who I believe is still with us. In 2011, they were t- together until death. Yeah. 
And he said, so he met Ken Kesey in 1961 at the Stanford Fellows Program. 60, 61, I think, yeah. And he said that he had maybe met Norma four times in between those 50 years, but Ken would never let Larry talk to her. Correct. I think that there's one other major thing to bring up here. And that is his overall relationship and particularly his platonic or maybe not platonic friendships with um, with women in general. His close friendships were almost exclusively with women. Correct. Are women closer to you than men? Sure. I don't think any men are close to me. They're my son. They're my grandson, maybe. And he knows women really well in his writing, but he's just as clueless as the next guy. (laughs) (laughs) He was sort of mum about a lot of these relationships. Some of his close friends include Susan Sontag, uh, Diane Keaton, and Sybil Shepard, as well as his writing partner, Diana Osana, which, I mean, in so many ways kind of looks like a sort of marriage, the closeness of those two. Whether it's more than that has always been speculative. But there's, I read a really great article about this. There's a woman named Maureen Oath. Lonesome Dove is dedicated to Maureen Oath. They were really close friends. And there's this quote in an article I read where Larry tells Maureen Oath, if I thought a love affair would last six months of intense pleasure, but that this woman I had a real affinity for would not be in my life 10 years from now, I would walk away from the love affair. If there was one to be walked around, I would go for the long-term friendship. Interesting. That's huge. He values emotional intimacy in the long term as something lasting and enduring more than physical in- intimacy that may be part of a whim or part of an urge. What, um, what do you think about this 50-year gap in marriage? In some ways, I'm impressed by the friendships and maybe he has many girlfriends. I mean, there is sort of murmurs that he's I don't even think it was a maybe. It said that he he dated a lot. Sure. Not controversially, but he just was a single man for a long time and dated a lot. So he has several of these women that he is very close to and that he talks about exactly as you said. I prioritize long-term, enduring, intimate friendship more than I would a six-month love affair. Right. Right. And so it's he has a bunch of these women in his life, and they are meeting that sort of emotional companionship that a marriage may fulfill. Yes. Right. But then on the other side, he's got these girlfriends that he is going through. And these are a series of six month or year relationships that are meeting, you know, more of a physical um, need, a physical need, but also just like the fun romantic side of it. And so it's like he's getting two worlds satisfied by two very disparate groups. But I think what's still missing is there's the lack of that one deep emotional intimacy. And that's the question for the universe. With that, do you have a deeper level of fulfillment and happiness? Larry, in those that period in between, is challenging that model and saying that, uh, yes, I have my emotional intimacy on one side and I have my romantic intimacy on another. I got to say something that, that's on my mind about all this, which is, I wish I knew a little bit more about the relationship between James and his mother. Yeah, I mean, but the same question came up in the last episode with Jaja. Indeed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't think of it the same way, but I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I Look, I think that life is so confusing and childhood and adolescence is so confusing that by the time you get to be an adult, you want to like run, you know, it's good to have siblings to run some of this shit by. What was your take on what was happening? If it's just the two of you, there's something, you know, if it's a father and a son, it's sort of beautiful. I don't mean to, I don't want to sound like I'm like, um, 
knocking single parenthood. Correct, right? But I, but I do think that uh, you know, if it's healthy for everybody involved, all other things being equal, um, I think it's good to have multiple adults at least and equally invested adults involved in child rearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad we got communes wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like communal living of the old like pioneer times and before or what happens in other countries, um, specifically in more like indigenous cultures. Maybe they're more right. I think Ken Kesey can be blamed a little bit. The LSD of the 1970s might have fucked up the commune idea. Category five? Yes. Category five. Net worth. Oh, we're doing this differently. We're doing this a little differently this time. I went out of my way to not look up the number so that Ahmed could surprise me with it and I could react to it. Yeah, so I found a different numbers. I found a range, but I found one number that I saw most consistently. I am on the edge of my seat. I want you to guess first. I'm going to go. I heard him talk about making and losing money a lot, and I don't think he had a particularly lucrative life. However... He was so prolific, and he was selling screenplays a lot. He went back to Hollywood again and again, and he had, you know, a career that he's grateful for. There, I, I'm going to guess 15 million. Two million is the most consistent number. Holy I've found. shit! Yes, two million. The four block bookstore in Archer City, I don't think, was a big profitable operation. Yeah, I think there was a lot of money sunk into passion. Yeah, two million. Two million at the end. Can I say something about that number? Yeah. Really like that number. For him? For him and for me. What? I know I go to You've 10 You've been a lot. talking about I, 10 know, for I know, but, but, but that's, 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 that's a working number. Wow, that's so much less than I would have thought. I guess that tracks. I mean, it tracks. It makes sense as soon as you say it. Uh, let me say this. I love that number for him, and I would also be good with that number. It is good. Yeah. Uh, what do you I, want to say about this? I think he had a lot more. If we look at total lifetime earnings, which is the the really not the number we want, but it's it's really hard to get. Right. I think he spent it well. I yes. think he spent it on passion. I think he spent it on uh, all of the development of Archer City and the bookstores and the antique book collections. I we mean, haven't really talked about that at this point. I mean, we should be clear that he was a, an, an emphatic, obsessive book collector. Do you think he likes collecting books more than writing? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, writing Most is a, his is. vocation and book collecting is his avocation. I mean... And you wrote, you collected... 400,000 books. It was more like 600,000. 600, but it, after the big sale, we everybody thinks you all the books are gone in Archer City. You still have how many left? I still have 200,000. I mean, even in his Oscar speech, when he wins for Brokeback Mountain, um, he makes a note to say, And finally, I'm going to thank all the booksellers of the world. Remember that Brokeback Mountain was a book before it was a movie. So the other thing I was going to say about his spending towards passion, another story that I found, is that I think Skip Hollinsworth- Yes, the says, Texas Monthly author. Yes, or, or said writer. this in an article about, uh, in a remembrance of Larry, and they said one of the things that he really liked or admired about Larry was his road trips. Yeah. So Larry would rent a Lincoln and just go driving across the country, uh, I'm going to just assume out west, until he got tired. And then he would just pay the exorbitant drop-off fee to like leave it in Boise and fly back to Tucson or whatever. <laughs> but he wouldn't actually set a plan. He would just go and drive to Lincoln and then be and like, I'm done. It. And they're like, that's going to be a $3,000 drop-off fee. And he's like, great. And then leaves. So maybe not as particularly good with money. Certainly not driven by money. Wow, $2 million, though. That's so much less than I would have thought. Mm -hmm. Should we move on? Yes. 
Category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. There is almost nothing. On The Simpsons, never appeared in any way, shape, or form. On Saturday Night Live, there is nothing. There is also no Hollywood Walk of Fame. Really? Yes. And I was disappointed about this. I went and finally got a little bit more information on how does one get a Hollywood Walk of Fame. And there, I think that there is a nomination process that's posthumous, uh, but they have to have been dead at least five years. So I think it's possible. Oh, to make so it, it could be coming for Brokeback. It could, or it could be coming for him overall. But there's not a lot of screenwriters that get a Hollywood star. However, there is a, an Academy Award, a Pulitzer Prize, and an, also a National Humanities Medal. And that's a very prestigious, very short list. There's a photograph out there of Larry McMurtry getting awarded the medal with Barack Obama. I mean, this is a go to the White House and get the medal. That's thing. pretty big. It's pretty big. I think I would also say this tracks with how famous he actually is. He, yeah. There is a huge number of Academy Awards associated with the movies that he either wrote or that were adapted into his films. Yeah. So four of them won Academy Awards, but there were multiple awards under them. And multiple nominations. Yeah, I mean, the four, and it, which is a pretty incredible spectrum. HUD, Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment, and Brokeback Mountain. That's a really stellar list when you put them all together and look at them and sort of their different stories. Yeah. Jeff Bridges' big break was Last Picture Show. That's right. Same thing with Sybil Shepard. All right. Category seven? Yep. Category seven. Over, under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year a person was born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. Larry McMurtry was born in 1936. A male born in 1936 had a life expectancy of 56.6 years. Larry died age 84. Crushed it. In terms of grace, so I think we should just move on to grace if that's okay. There was a major change in his quality of life after his heart surgery in 1991. I don't know how many of you have undergone four bypasses and tried to return to normal life. You can't because you're not the person you was. You may be the physical person, but you're not the emotional person. Because I was emotionally crippled by a a savage operation. What what happened, really, after the surgery was Larry stopped writing. He stopped stopped reading. He stopped doing anything except sitting on the couch and looking out the window. It was almost like he disappeared. You have to form from fragments of the former personality, fragment here, fragment there, fragment there, enough fragments of yourself to be able to function. This was a, a work of two or three, four years before I really got my feet under myself. It's just a hard thing to get over. And I don't, I'm not, I don't think I've quite got over it yet. That's basically all I have to say on Grace there. What do you think about the final years? Let's just say, so he died in 2021. Yeah. Um, what we saw of him in the last 10, 15 years, right? I mean, his Academy Award for Brokeback Mountain came 15 years before his death. That's right. not so bad for being, uh, what, near 70 years old. I think it's a full life. It is a full life, but I think I I kind of like the uh, the conclusion, the way yeah. it looked. I mean, he's still giving talks. He's giving. He's starting to giving more interviews actually in the later part of his life. Yeah, he's still writing. It did not seem like a demise. And he goes out and woos a wife at age what seventy four. Yeah, of his former rival. I like it for him. I think the question that we're building up to the Vanderbeek of how much I want to be what he was all about. 
is still an open question mark. But in terms of what he's all about, I like the graceful aging. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I'll sign off on that. Let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Michael, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, If you could take today's dead celebrity to any retail store, what would it be? Ooh. I think I would take him to Half Price Books, Ahmed. Half Price Books? Half Price absolutely. Explain yourself, sir. Well, I, th- I love shopping for books with people. Shopping for books is always stimulates interesting conversation, right? You browse the different aisles and you see, you know, different topics come to mind. Have you ever read this author? Have you ever read that book? It's just a good place to talk and wander and discover. So yeah, absolutely. Half Price Books is an awesome venue to connect with people, to discover books that you've long forgotten about or that you haven't read. And it's all a great price. And you know what? Half Price Books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are over 120 stores, and you can find out more at hpb.com. Okay, this is the part of the show where we get to the more introspective questions. We want to take our best guess at what we think it might have been like to have been this person. The first of the introspective categories is man in the mirror. What did this person think about their own reflection? Ahmet. Negative. Wow, you were quick with that. Yeah, and I'll tell you where this comes from. All right. Do you remember what we did last night? Uh, went out for drinks. We had went out for drinks. We went out for drinks with a couple of our friends who were therapists. Correct. There was discussions about attachment. And I started thinking about all these uh, relationships that Larry McMurtry has with women, these deep, emotionally intimate friendships. Yeah. I think there's a validation issue in there somewhere. I think he is not sure that he is wanted. And perhaps this is an early attachment issue or whatever, but perhaps all of these deep female friendships is dealing with some sort of attachment issue. And I'm correlating attachment issues into not being okay with how you look in the mirror because you need outside validation. You can't look in the mirror, give a thumbs up and say, okay, you need somebody else to validate your existence. I wrote, he's the surly sort who I don't think cared, but I don't think he liked his reflection you have put words to something that was very much in my mind i wholeheartedly agree i think you, we don't know but i think you're onto something yeah i think i think the surly is a cover great take outgoing message yes next category outgoing message you lead with this one like man in the mirror how do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail would they even have used it and recorded it 
on a cell phone? I'm going no, and it has to do with the way he talks. He mumbles a lot, and his teeth don't move much. He almost seems to be, whenever he talks, sort of reluctantly talking. And this is a man who cares way more about written word than he does about the spoken word. Even though he's great at dialogue, I think that he could give a fuck about speaking, and I don't think he wants to do it. I agree. I'm not taking the sound side. I'm taking the, would he actually do it as far as devoting the time and exposing his own voice out there? Yeah. I don't think so. I think he's like, this isn't a good use of my time. There's a machine that does that. And if people are calling me, they already know what I sound like. Yeah. Okay. Next category, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. I don't see the regrets with this guy. I had to rack my brain, but I did find one that I feel pretty strongly about. And it's both a public and private one. Interesting. He obviously was involved in movies, both his books being adapted to movies and then writing and adapting screenplays himself. Right. So in one of the interviews I watched, he said that he can't watch movies for pleasure anymore. I was a passionate, passionate moviegoer until I began to write screenplays professionally. It's professionalizing a passion. It takes the passion out of it. It's like a job for me to watch a movie. I gotta wonder, that sucks. Yeah, that does. I would regret that. I would hate to, like, some turn in my life takes me into movies and then I can't enjoy them anymore. Yeah. Movies are hugely important. And I would hate the idea of doing what you love, ruining the love of the consumption. Yeah. It's a good regret. Otherwise, this does not look like a regretful man. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't see a ton of built-up regrets, certainly not the deathbed type. Yeah. However, our next category is good dreams, bad dreams. And this is not about personal perception, but rather does this person have a haunted look in the eye that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma? I'm going to go bad dreams. Uh, the surliness that we talked about, the curmudgeonliness, it's born from something. Though I think the guy loved the magic of the written word and the book, those are very solitary things. That's a heads-down type of enjoyment, and that's going into fantasy in your head. The enjoyment of the daily life, which is really circulating into the brain and the neurons that make up the composition of dreams, I just didn't have enough sense that that was flowing happily enough. When he was teaching at Rice... There was a description I came across that said he didn't encourage his students much. In fact, he discouraged them. What he did was show them the possibility of, let's say, becoming an author. But he wasn't a cheerleader. He wasn't an optimist Yeah. to other people. And to me, I'm just translating that into the way that he could appreciate every step and every breath. And I think that could have been bad. I also went bad. Maybe a slightly different reason. His childhood sounds really lonely. You know, there are big open skies in that part of Texas. And I do think that the, the way time is just always slipping. But there's a sadness to me about the transience of time. That, and the way he seems to be very smart and aware of its inevitability, but also the grief that surrounds things always slipping into the past. On a more simple level, I just see a haunted look in the eye. I can't quite put my finger on it, but if I look into that guy's eyes, there's something unresolved there. What we talked about in recent episodes, and I think it's becoming a real central theme of our show, is creative 
catharsis is the term I've been using, but, you know, sort of peace arrived through artistry. I think there's almost compulsion with him. Anybody who, he's got the discipline to get up and bang out 10 to 15 pages of words. Five to, five to 10, I believe. Five to 10. Actually, I did see 15 at some points in his life. But yeah, five to 10 pages a day. Those were the Benzo years. <laughs> right. Um, there's something almost compulsive about that. You know, like, if I don't do this, I won't be okay. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like a fervency. Yeah. Which I think does make for great writing. And he was critical of Kesey for, like, basically doing two great books and then walking away. I don't know. I see something there. We don't see a lot of sunshine in the sky. <laughs> I think that's well put. All right. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what kind of drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or maybe it's access to them, something that we're most curious about. Uh, cocktail. I see a great wall in this man in the interviews. I don't think that's probably true of these close relationships that he has with primarily women. Yeah. But I think if I'm getting a session with him, I have to break down that wall. And what I want it to be about is storytelling, because I think this guy has seen some incredible stuff between the movies he's contributed to, the ways that his life has crossed other paths. He's obviously a gifted storyteller because he's a writer, but I want to hear his stories about the little bitty moments in his life, which are actually pretty historical. And I don't think he can do it with emotion or attitude without breaking down some of the inhibition. I agree with that. And so we need a couple of tall pints of whiskey with some Lone Star backs. Whiskey backs by Lone Star? Yeah, it's typically the other way. Yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. what I'm going with. In his memoirs, I mean, he does share a fair amount, but he also draws walls there too. He doesn't tell you everything. This man is not transparent. I also went whiskey. Hmm. I kind of went an old-fashioned with Larry McMurtry for most of the same reasons, the storytelling in particular. But there's also a part of me, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but that I almost want to like him more. I love his books. I love the movies that he's been involved with. I think they're some of my favorite movies. And I love the culture and quality that surrounds him. I love this sort of literary life aura. But I don't know how much I like him. I don't know how much I actually want to hang out with him. He is surly. He is a little bit distant. However, there are some friends I have who are not as easily broken down into kind of a relatable level until you get them a little drunk, until they have some whiskey. And some of my great friends, actually, like the bonding happened when we were hammered, you know, and those walls come down a little bit. So I'm with you. I want to get drunk with this guy and see those walls come down a little bit because I almost feel like I see like the height of those walls and how to overcome them. And if there's one drug that I think would help facilitate that, it'd be it'd be whiskey. Got it. And he may give it back. He may give the I love you man back. He after might. Enough of those. He might. But it would also sort of for me answer the question too. Like if he couldn't give it back, I would have, a, I feel like a better overall take on him. Yeah. And I kind of want that answer. So there's even curiosity here too. Yeah. Then you're validated. And then you have to just call up the, the ghost of Kesey and be like, what was it like when he took LSD? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No shit. Tell me about the Houston trips. Our final category. 
named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. This is the Vanderbeek. Based on everything we've talked about, the question is, do you want this life? I want to say something first. Okay. I want to make an argument that Larry McMurtry is James Vanderbeek in Varsity Blues. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me. So he was an athlete in Archer City. I think, I know certainly he ran track, but maybe he played football yeah. too, but yeah. he was a bookish athlete. Yeah. So they would talk about like taking the bus to Fort Worth to go for a game. Um, and Larry would like slip away and find a bookstore yes. in Fort Worth. Yes. And the image I have from Barcy Blues and James Vanderbeek is him like sitting on the sideline reading Vonnegut. I could not help the parallel when I heard that story about him going to the game in Fort Worth and running away to a bookstore. Yeah, <laughs> that is very, that's Vanderbeekish. Well, do you have a lean? Because I got to say, leading into this, I'm actually, like all the stuff we talked about in the first half of this conversation had me going for a pretty hard yes. And all the stuff we talked about in the second half of this conversation had me going for a pretty hard no. Yeah. I'll come out and say it. No. I don't want his life. Uh, What you just said about you're not sure if you like him, I'm not sure about that either. The man made books and played parts in movies that literally might be remembered for 50 to 100 plus years. But I didn't get the vitality of life from him. An example is he would never laugh out loud. I don't know about never, but this is another thing I got from the Skip Hollinsworth article is that he would hang out with Larry McMurtry and Larry McMurtry would talk about Dr. Pepper and Frito Pie, but he could never get the man to laugh out loud. And I suffer from that too. I don't know what happened sometime around like 15 to 20 years ago is I kind of somehow lost the ability to really let go and laugh out loud frequently. Mm. I can still do it, but the frequency went away. And that is one of the things that I aim to fix. But I see that in McMurtry. I hear that fact and I hear the way that he does interviews. And I hear you say that you love the man's work and you love the man's legacy, but you're not sure you like him. And I would rather be liked than have people love my work. Wow. I'm a- so I'm a no. I think I'm a lean no too for a lot of the same reasons. There's something lonely about him. And I I relate to him in some really, to me, surprising ways. This sort of Texas nostalgia, vanishing landscapes, vanishing characters thing. I have a preoccupation with that. I also think, you know, to see your son grow up and find his own artistry and success in that artistry and, and to be proud of it and to like it. That's really fucking good. That's some good fulfillment. And you can see the closeness of those guys, you know, or at least I I perceive, I perceive. And with with the grandson as well. Correct. But I think I'm with you in that I don't think I want this. If one of the kind of catch-all ideas that I think we're after with Famous and Gravy is relational wealth, there are a couple of like major holes here. And maybe it is really in the marriage category, which at times I emphasize and at times I don't in this show. But I don't I don't want one marriage for seven years and then I marry a friend's widow that, that almost looks like it's kind of, I don't know, competitive. Weird. It's a little weird. Yeah. 
And I don't know how much I need to be definitively Texan. I think that there are parts of me that I like that about myself, that I'm born and raised here, and that I understand it and kind of get it warts and all. I'm not saying it was something he was proud of, but I'm not sure it's something that I want either. I'm going to go no too. It's not a strong no, though, Amit. It's more than redeemable. There are some absolutely desirable things about this life, but on balance, I think I'm a no. Yeah. I'm, w- I'm with you on not a very strong no. The lives he touched, how much his books and art meant to so many people yeah. is incredible. When I was fresh out of high school, I did a gap year, and I uh, did something called a Knowles course in uh, Patagonia. I was in the wilderness for three months with 15 other young men. Everybody brought like one or two books, and so everybody was handing the same set of books around. Lonesome Dove was one of those books. And everybody was like, oh, oh, finally, I get a chance to read it. But I remember reading Lonesome Dove, and and it is on the short list of my favorite books of all time. And I'd love to be able to claim that I contributed something like that to the culture and art of history. But I'm still a no on the Vanderbeek. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're saying is that you've got – would I trade an incredible legacy for more joviality? And my answer is yes, I would do that. It's a good summation. All right, then. We are at the end of our show. The pitch to St. Peter. So, Michael, you are Larry McMurtry. You have just died. You stand before St. Peter, who is the Unitarian fill-in for all afterlives of all beliefs. Make your case. Peter, Larry. So I'm from North Texas, and I grew up just a few decades after the frontier was sort of settled. I think that period in history is really misunderstood, but I actually think most of history is misunderstood. They were humans. Being human is primarily an emotional experience, whatever else surrounds that. And it's full of pain and sorrow and joy. And it's built on relationships. I wasn't perfect in all of my relationships, but I was a close friend I was a dedicated father, and through my art, I tried to shine as much light as I possibly could on what makes us human. However, the world is changing constantly all around us. I think that was a gift both to the people who knew me, to the state of Texas, and to the people who I never met. For that, please, let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, we have a favor to ask. We hear from a lot of people that this show cheers them up. It puts them in a good mood. So think of somebody in your life, just one person who you'd like to cheer up and share an episode of our show with them. Be like, hey man, here's an episode of Famous and Gravy. Share it with anybody who you think could stand to be put in a good mood. We are on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks so much to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you again for listening. Please share this episode, and we hope to see you next time.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.